Good evening, and welcome to the April 12th edition of Eye on the Triangle. I'm your host, Chris Chaffee. This week, we have a great show for you. Mark Herring, our correspondent, has prepared an interview with Danny McBride, star of the new movie Your Highness, and he caught up with some folks that cleaned the Noose River. I met up with some thespians from the Burning Coal Theater Company who are in a new play called Shape of the Table. Later, we will have a segment from Kyle Jones about high fructose corn syrup. We will also have sound bites, video game news, an interview with the members of the Studio Collective, and Matt Gardner will tell us a story about ants. We will also have poems by Muhammad Moosin. So stay here on 881 for all this and more on an eye on the triangle. But first, the news. At least 59 bodies were discovered in a mass grave last week as protesters in Mexico march against the continued drug violence. The bodies were found in Tempulipas in eight separate graves by state police investigating the disappearance of bus passengers who were abducted en route to America. The violence was condemned by the protesters who chanted no more blood while others called for the resignation of President Felipe Calderon. Protesters say that his strategy for dealing with the violence has only exacerbated the problem. About 35,000 Mexicans have died in drug-related violence since Calderon began deploying the army to combat drug cartels in late 2006. Demonstrations were inspired by Javier Cecilia, whose son was killed in drug-related violence last week. Cecilia has said that politicians and drug cartels have, quote, torn apart the fabric of the nation. An elderly woman cut the Internet off for three countries while digging for salvageable copper with a shovel. The 75-year-old woman from the nation of Georgia hit and damaged a fiber optics cable, cutting off Internet access for millions. Georgia provides 90% of the Internet for its neighbor, Armenia, which left 3.2 million without access, while some in areas of Georgia and Azerbaijan were also taken offline. She was detained by authorities for damaging property, but was later released for old age, but still may face up to three years in prison. The leak of highly radioactive water from Japan's crippled Fukushima reactor into the Pacific Ocean has been plugged, officials say. Engineers have been struggling to stop the leaks since the plant was damaged in a catastrophic earthquake on March 11th. To stem the leak, the Tokyo Electric Power Company injected sodium silicate, or water glass, into the pit. Despite this advance, workers at the plant say they cannot rule out the possibility of more leaks. As of April 11th, France has begun implementing its statewide burqa ban. It has taken more than a year of heated debate to make a difficult passage through the French Parliament. Opponents say this law violates European laws regarding religious freedom, while proponents say that this is a step in the right direction for the sake of public security. Police say that they will enforce the law. At least two arrests have already been made, but some say they do not believe in the new law. Former Ivorian President Laurent Bagbo has surrendered to the forces of the president claimant Alassane Ouattara and is currently being held by them. UN spokesman Farham Haq said that the U.N. was providing protection and security in accordance with its mandate and its efforts to secure Bagbo. Toussaint Alain, a Bagbo advisor, told Reuters that the incumbent president had been arrested by French special forces in his residence and was handed over to the rebel leaders. Jean-Marc Simon, the French ambassador to the Ivory Coast, said that the operation was carried out by soldiers loyal to Ouattara. The Transitional National Council has rejected outright the African Union's proposal to negotiate a way out of the crisis in Libya. The Rebel Council, which is based in Benghazi, said that the roadmap to peace drawn up by the delegation of five African presidents was outdated in the wake of the deaths and destruction which has occurred in the past month since the proposal was first outlined. Spokesman for the rebels, Mustafa Jabil, told reporters that the demand of our people from day one was that Gaddafi must step down. Any initiative which does not include this key popular demand will not be regarded. Mustafa also thanked coalition forces for their help, which he said saved the lives of civilians. Lastly, an Indonesian anti-porn MP who helped to pass tough anti-pornography laws in Indonesia has resigned after being caught watching sexually explicit videos on his computer during parliamentary debate. A photographer saw the MP, a member of the Islamic Prosperous Justice Party, gazing at a porn website last Friday. The MP has since stepped down and apologized to his constituents since the pictures were released. WKNC 88.1. Right now it is 64 degrees outside in the Triangle. Tonight it will be a low of 47 with a 40% chance of precipitation and thunderstorms. Tomorrow it will be 70 degrees Fahrenheit, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow night... 49 degrees Fahrenheit and clear. And then Thursday, you're going to have a nice sunny 74 and then a low of 49. Right now, the wind is blowing 
at 3.0 miles per hour. And now I'm joined here in the studio with Thomas Anderson. Thomas, you went out and interviewed some folks from the uh, Studio Collective. I did. I did. Um, once a year, the council, um, pardon me, the College of Design Design Council um, kind of opens up its doors, lets folks see what really goes on um, behind the kind of mysterious abyss that the College of Design at NC State can be. So we learn a little bit more um, in this segment about what um, Studio Collective will be like. That will be this Saturday, April 16th, um, behind the Design School, Brooks and Camp Fefner Hall. Um, you can get more information about this at codcouncil.com. It's just codcouncil.com. Um, but, yeah, you'll hear more about it in a minute. And also, if you guys are in the listening area and you have nothing to do, go to Reynolds Coliseum right now for Art to Wear Fashion Show, the yearly fashion show over at Reynolds Coliseum this evening. Some of the best designers in the North Carolina State University will be showing off their wares. So go there if you are not doing anything. However, here is the Studio Collective interview. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Thomas Anderson. Most students at NC State University have at least some perspective on the College of Design. It's one of the smaller and more selective colleges at the university. Its students keep odd and often sleepless timetables, and incidentally, they have a reputation for throwing the best parties. Once a year, the student body group known as the Design Council tasks itself with showcasing the fruits of the college's work in an exposition known as the Studio Collective. The Collective is a unique opportunity for the College of Design to expose its inner workings and its finished touch to other students and anyone interested in getting to know what exactly all those late nights have availed. Recently, I was able to sit down with a few students who helped put together this year's Studio Collective. Hi, um, I'm Tim Rosenberg. I serve as Design Council President, and I'm a sophomore in graphic design. I'm Yasi Mohebi, and I am a sophomore in graphic design also, and I'm in acapology. Hey, I'm Megan Sadler. I'm a senior in animal science, and I'm a co-director of acapology, and we'll be performing at Studio Collective. So, I guess, Tim, let's talk about Studio Collective. Um, just give us a brief overview of uh, what folks can expect on... Saturday. Well, uh, this Saturday we're having a free catering from Jasmine's. We are also giving a tour for the rising freshmen um, because uh, when they come during the summer during orientation, they don't really get to see what the college is like when it's alive and living. So we're going to give them a tour and uh, we're featuring a group called um, Old Nadine with some of our students. They're a new uh, folk band playing and afterwards we're having um, Acapology playing for us. And uh, after things kind of uh, mingle down, we're going to have uh, our, our studios open up and people can take a look at all the different work that our students have done. So is this stuff that uh, the design students have done this year, or is it stuff you could have done last year? Is it all new work, old work? Um, most of the work is uh, work that students have done this year, but um, students are more than welcome to include outside work that they've done. Um, for example, there is uh, an architecture and industrial design team that are working on developing an alternative bike rack. Uh, they want to look at sustainability um, strategies and using um, using bikes and implementing um, this new bike rack design um, on campus. So, I mean, it's something that they're doing a little bit outside of uh, their own schoolwork, but it's uh, going to be great to see. What 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 need would you say, I guess, that Studio Collective serves? Um, from, you know... Everyone knows that there's a tendency for the the college of design to to be seen as this almost this black hole to where students go in into the studio they slave over their work um, up into like you know four a.m. into the morning they wake up and they do it all over again so um, no one really gets to see all of the work that goes behind um, all of the the creative process that the students work so this is almost like shining um, a light onto this, this unknown universe that everyone hears about but never sees until now. So, Yasi, any, um, anything in particular that you are looking forward to this year? You said earlier this was your first Studio Collective. Yeah, I've never been to a Studio Collective before. Um, I didn't go last year, and I didn't know about it in previous years. So I'm uh, really thrilled to be performing with Acapology this year, and um, I'm really excited to go around, see everyone's work, and to show my work, and... Um, hopefully also get a little bit more of the design students into our music, Acapology's music, and um, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Within the College of Design, what, what, what do you have? Like there's graphic design? There's graphic design, there's industrial design, architecture, landscape architecture, and art and design. 
So all of these, there will be pieces from all of these different disciplines? Yeah, everybody um, in all of those studios has the opportunity to show their work if they want to and just display it for everyone who wants to come see it. So take me through the uh, planning process for Studio Collective. We first begin by um, letting all students vote for a theme, and this year the theme is called Geometrica. Um, and so we're incorporating the theme by using um, the our maps, our signage, um, our navigation to have all these, uh, you know, geometric symbols and lines, and um, to make the the decoration um, go along with the theme, and uh, so if, you know, first we vote on the theme, and then we um, design posters, do our publicity material, and um, this year, um, I think the what we've decided to do new is having the new freshmen um, have a um, have a tour of the campus, what it looks like when it's alive and breathing. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about um, Design Council itself, I guess, and uh, the work that goes into that. Well, uh, Design Council is a student body organization of the College of Design, and um, as president, it's my goal to kind of, you know, enhance um, interaction between the students and um, organize our annual studio collective um, every year. And um, in October, we have our infamous bash that this coming Halloween. And... Um, my my goal as a as design council president is to uh, foster um, interactivity between um, all the different students. Um, every um, every other Friday, I'm organizing an event called Fridays in the Pit, in which we get you know free pokey sticks and um, drinks for um, all the students to um, kind of mingle and socialize with the faculty. And it's a great way to you know um, to kind of kick back after a crazy week in the studio and uh, um, get to talk to faculty members and people in other disciplines that you might not have uh, been able to see otherwise. And so that's kind of um, my my role as a design council president. So let's swing it over to the Acapology ladies. Um, what's it what, what's it mean for Acapology to be playing at or to be performing at a another NC State event? Yeah, we're really excited to be singing at Studio Collective. Um, Acapology has been working really hard in the past year semester alone to you know, open up our repertoire to different styles of music and open ourselves up to different people on campus. And so it's really exciting to be asked by the design school to sing at such a big event. We're really excited. Funny story, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I live in, a, in in Barry dorm, and I would cook my uh, my dinners in the kitchen. And I think on Sundays, they would always have rehearsal, um, Sundays and Wednesdays. And so I, I'd, be, I'd be enjoying dinner in the kitchen, and then I was like, Wait, 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 what's what's going on next door? What is harmonious? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, so, um, you know, this, you know, I started to, uh, to have a free, uh, free show with my dinner, which is great, uh, for a couple of weeks. And then, um, I decided, hey, these guys sound great. Let's have them at a studio collective. And so it's, it's kind of how this whole thing happened. Um, and I'm glad that my dinner and a show led to this great opportunity as well. Can I just say, Tim is our, our biggest fan. <laughs> so after Studio Collective, what's next for Acapology? Well, our spring concert is on May 1st in Stewart Theater. Uh, we're really excited. We have a bunch of new songs to debut and uh, a bunch of new singers who we haven't exactly heard from. Yasi has a new solo this semester, which we're really excited about. Uh, so definitely come out and uh, hear us sing, hear us show our stuff. You can find more information on our website, aka101.com. You can also find us on Facebook and uh, MySpace and Twitter. Certainly will. All the best of luck to Acapology. So, Tim, in a sentence, why should folks come out to Studio Collective this weekend? Coming to Studio Collective is almost like learning about um, the, the secret to any magician's trick. You know, you see all of his uh, many wonders and his mysteries, but you never know how he does it. So Studio Collective is a time where you get to see, you know, behind the, the smoke and mirrors and find out what really goes on within the College of Design. And again, just to remind everybody, that's the Design Studio Collective this Saturday, April 16th. And it'll be starting between Brooks Hall and Camp Fefner Hall. Um, full details again at codcouncil.com. But uh, before we go, I don't really want to squander this opportunity. You've got two live voice talents here from Acapology. You guys want to get in a uh, pitch of your own? So, all right, do you want me to do Come to Studio Collective? And you do something underneath that? Is that good? Come to Studio Collective. That was good. Wait, okay, Let's hold on, do hold it on. again. Hold on. <laughs> 
come to studio collect and then come to studio collecting yeah okay let's do it yeah come to studio collective nice (laughs) (laughs) all right fantastic well best of luck to acapology best of luck to studio collective this weekend um thank you guys so much for coming in all right tom thanks for having us and uh we'll see you next time You are listening to Eye on the Triangle here on WKNC. Unfortunately, it is time to take a break, but when we come back, the Burning Call Theater will tell us about their newest play. Kyle Jones will be giving us some insight on high fructose corn syrup. Mark will be giving his reports and much, much more. So stay tuned right here on WKNC. to work with you know anyone from like Bill Murray to you know the Cohen brothers you know any of these any of these guys Scorsese all the big guns all the yeah. cool guys right yeah but only as actors right <laughs> yeah. a, a low a low budget porno film with all those guys would be cool right <laughs> yeah. on Tuesday March 22nd actor and screenwriter Danny McBride and director David Gordon Green came to NC State to promote their latest film Your Highness and to provide a sneak peek for students. Your Highness, which just hit theaters on April 8th, is a fantasy comedy starring not just McBride, but also James Franco and Natalie Portman. Thaddeus, the character of Danny McBride, is a lazy, good-for-nothing prince. And following the story, he has to go out on a dangerous quest with his perfect brother, Prince Fabius, who's played by James Franco. The story features the misadventures of the princes while they fumble through their comical versions of the quintessential fairy tale blunders. I, I think, uh, you know, this comes from us having a, a straight love for, you know, sword and sorcery fantasy films, everything from. Conan the Barbarian to uh, even like Harry Potter, you know, and this is a version of those films where you can uh, see swear words, you know, everything that all those films are lacking. Now, I have a question. Is this sort of uh, a movie kind of making fun of the genre or is it just a funny version of this sort of genre? I think it's just a funny version of the genre. You know, when we started this, we never really wanted to lampoon the genre or anything. We only wanted to, we really just wanted to make one of those films, you know. When it came to everything from the the creature design to the weapons, like, that was something that we wanted to feel legit and not kind of find jokes in that stuff. We really wanted it to be of the caliber of what you'd expect from one of these sort of films. This is just, uh... A question about your character, Thaddeus. Um, the character kind of required somewhat of a British accent, but you're classically known for your southern drawl and, uh, you know, in Eastbound Down and everything. But um, what was it like just going into this, having to speak like a Brit? It was nuts. You know, we I, we weren't really sure what the studio was going to think about any of us speaking in accents. And so uh, it was kind of like no one was really talking about it up until the point we were getting ready to film. And we even had a, uh, a dialect coach who was there to – I mean, I wouldn't even call what I did a British accent per se. I wouldn't insult the people of the U.K. in that way. It was more of like this weird sort of fantasy accent. We were watching movies like Lady Hawk where Matthew Broderick in the beginning – is speaking in a British accent, and then, like, in the next scene, he just kind of sounds like Ferris Bueller, and then he's back into a British accent. And uh, and we were, we were like, you know, as long as what we're doing is consistent, you know, that that's all that that's all that we need to do. And so we had a dialect coach there who was the, the real deal. I mean, he had, he had trained a lot of big actors, and I, I think he was just there to, like, make sure, like, whatever voice you're using, just make sure it stays consistent. Yeah. Every little dialect or what has its uh, quirks and different nuances but what was your favorite part like would you just talk in your fantasy accent by yourself you know freak yourself out what was that like 
Yeah, you know, when we would when we'd write the movie, we would, you know, that was the voice that we would just kind of throw back and forth to each other when we were, like, writing dialogue and stuff. And it, we would just make ourselves crack up in the room just saying, you know, just speak, you know, throwing in modern anachronisms in there with uh, with this voice. And so it, did, it, it was something that started to catch on for sure. Like, we would talk this way, you know, outside of work while we were down there. You just kind of get in the mindset where every, any, time, any cuss word, any sort of modern take with that accent always tends to kind of be a little fun. Did you try, did you practice by yourself in your like hotel room? I never practiced by myself. I uh, it was always just like while we wrote, and I feel like just messing around, and then yeah. Well, but, that's kind of what the movie. The movie is like a very expensive way. I mean, I know when like when I was a kid, I'd go see a Star Wars movie or an Indiana Jones movie, and then I'd be in my backyard swinging from trees like with, with cardboard swords, you know, trying to fight people and like reenact some of the things that I loved about movies. And I think this movie was basically a very expensive version of kids in the backyard having a lot of fun you know, paying homage to the movies that they love. You wrote this movie, so what was the real impetus that really made you put pen to paper? It's really strange. You know, we, David and I went to film school together, and so, uh, you know, at the North Carolina School of the Arts, and a lot of times when you're there, you do end up spitting a lot of ideas, you know, and sometimes you just get an idea that, as silly as it is, like, your mind tends to kind of just go back to it and constantly kind of generate material for it, and honestly, when we first thought of this movie, it was really just a joke. It was just something we thought would be funny that nobody would ever make, but through the years, I just always would kind of come back to it, and you could always kind of think of, like, you know, different elements of it. I could almost just see it in my head more clearly than a lot of the other ideas I had, so eventually, it just kind of came to the forefront of, like, you know, of all the things I could work on, this right here feels like, you know, I would have the most fun writing something like this right now you know that alpha male arrogance when you don't really have it you know have what it takes to back that up to me i just always find that humorous and uh so i feel like that's why i like to explore it and it also has to do with you know as a writer films like your highness or things like eastbound and down i mean part of the fun of those is like trying to take a a genre and and figuring out a way to get the audience behind a character that they're normally not going to root for in these sort of films and as a writer that's i think is what's it's fun to do that it's fun to to tell a story from a person who morally is a little askew and to figure out a way still to get the audience to root for that person go on and explain how it's not just a comedy movie but there are very strong elements of action, quest, adventure. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, uh, the crew we put together for this movie, I mean, it was a second unit director that had uh, done does huge major um, uh, big budget action movies, and so he helped uh, he helped show us how to put all that together. It was uh, everyone from the guys that were designing all the weapons did Braveheart. So we got legit guys that that knew how to make things historical and authentic and also creative and insane. The production designer was a very acclaimed production designer we got from London that built these massive sets and depict these uh, these landscapes that kind of gave it an epic quality and we shot it in a way that tried to capture the beauty of the of the of the locations and the sets. It's all just about taking everything very seriously and then taking the piss out of it, you know, so you could you could you have the fabric of an awesome adventure movie, but then you get to laugh your ass off along the way. This past week, I sat down with David Bentner from the NC State Entomology Department, and we spoke at length about an invasive ant known as the Asian Needle Ant. We met in the ant lab at Gardner Hall, a wonderful room filled to the ceiling with all sorts of creepy crawlies, and he let me know what kind of work he was doing with them. I studied the invasive ant, Pachycondylichinensis, which is also known as the Asian Needle Ant, and I was studying the interactions between this invasive ant and a native ant that occupies the same habitat in the woodlands of the southeastern United States. 
when I first moved to North Carolina State, I started working with Benoit Gunyard, who's in the zoology department. And he had been working with Pachycondylichinensis for a year. And when I first arrived, we were calling it an introduced ant. We weren't calling it an invasive yet because we didn't have proof that it was doing anything harmful to the environment or fauna that it was living with. But Benoit came out with some really compelling data that showed that wherever pachycondyla, the invasive ant, occurred in natural habitats, there was a sharp decline in several natural or native ant species. And that's what caused us to to term it an invasive species. According to Bentner, observing ants in the field requires a good bit of dirty work. I just started out going out with Benoit to the forest, and all I did was go and kick around old stumps and logs, kick them open to see where the ants were living, what they were doing, and I started to notice a lot of patterns as far as where they were living. They were living with termites. I think maybe we found two nests that were under rocks, whereas all the rest were in logs. Of the ones that were in logs, a high percentage of them were also with termites. Bender decided to bring some samples of the ants and the termites that he found back to the lab to run some more experiments. As you can imagine, it was a lot of carnage, mostly just the ants killing the termites. So I started to vary that. So they had a very intact and defendable nest. I gave them a lot of soldiers. I tested the difference between soldier ratios to see if that had an impact on predation by this invasive ant, and it didn't. The invasive ant was able to wipe them out no matter how many soldiers they had. So they obviously hadn't evolved to defend against this invasive ant, which is pretty typical of introducing an invasive to a natural habitat. The natural system isn't able to defend against this invasive ant. But how can one ant be that different from another? Bentner explains what sets some species apart. There's over 14,000 species of ants, and each one has evolved to either specialize on a particular niche of food that they're going to eat or behavior that they're going to do, and it varies widely within the ant species. So the ponerines, for instance, which Pachycondyla belongs to the subfamily Ponerinae, are a fairly primitive subfamily of ants. They're all, almost all of them are predaceous and they hunt solitarily or in groups. Um, they, they have fairly primitive forms of communication within that subfamily, whereas some ants, like the native that I studied, Aphenogaster rudis, is in the subfamily Myrmicinae, which is a more highly derived species of ant. They have several different forms of communication. They don't only use chemical pheromone trails, but um, they'll use posturing and mandibular striking and just several other stridulation, which is a type of vibration, which you would think of like with grasshoppers or crickets. Um, these ants do stridulation, so they're much more highly derived ant as far as evolutionary terms go. The differences between ants might not always be so obvious, but they are certainly still just as important. Bentner had to really get into the ant to understand what makes them do what they do. I think the most important thing when you're studying invasive ant is really trying to look at the biology of that ant. Um, and before you can jump to any conclusions, you really do have to understand its behavior and how it lives in the environment that it lives in. So that, that was what kind of the goal of my research was. I wanted to, I developed all these special nest kits so that I could view its life in the nest and look at how it interacted with those native species with as little disturbance as possible. So what does all this mean for us as humans? Ants are moving in, moving out, and pushing each other around. What could we possibly learn from all of this? The answer, according to Bentner, is obvious. I think ants are probably the most amazing, one of the most amazing insects um, in the world, and I think they're very underappreciated. I think we can learn a lot from ants. Ants have been successful societal creatures and dominated the terrestrial metazoa for, what, 120 million years or longer? And their basic morphology hasn't changed that much, but their social structures have. So if we want to learn anything about how we should structure our society, we should probably be looking to ants if we want to be successful. So there is something to think about. For us to be successful as humans, we need to look to the humble ant. For Eye on the Triangle News, I'm Matt Gardner. Thanks, Matt. 
And now we're going to move on. The Burning Coal Theater Company has presenting right now, as we speak, a play called The Shape of the Table. And they caught up with me at early 9 o'clock on Saturday morning to record a little scene. And then I interviewed Peter Tedesco, one of the actors. And now for the Burning Coal Theater Company. Uh, hi, my name is James Anderson, and I am playing the role of Pavel Pruse. I'm Tamara Farias Kraus, and I'm playing Monica Freya. Hello. Uh, oh, I'm hello. sorry. I am. Um, oh no, no, no I'm please, sorry. Please, I, it doesn't matter. Uh, right. It's not usual for people to be early, isn't it? Despite the resolution of the 1987 Party Congress. Yeah, right. And you are a a new member. Not exactly. A co-opted expert. Mm, in a sense. A sense. Who are you? Do you mean I my mean, profession? What are you? I'm a window cleaner. Window cleaner? But before that, I was a copy editor. A what? Before that, I wrote books. And now? Now, I'm an inmate of a first category correctional institution. Ah. Ah, right. So, who are you? Um, do you mean... I mean your name. It's Monica. I mean, it's Freya. And you're what, a waitress? I'm a second category assistant in the governmental secretariat. Only second category? I feel most superior. So they just, uh, just brought you here. That's right. From the, um, first category... Correctional? For some interview or something. Well, so I'd assumed. And sort of dumped you. Mm. In fact, I ought perhaps to make a run for it. <laughs> or maybe not. Well, that's... that's relief. So then... What did a charmer like you do to end up in a correctional institution? Oh, long story. So don't tell it. Well, first of all, you see, I used to write these books. It's not illegal to write books. Of course not, but I found it harder and harder to get them published. Perhaps they weren't that good. And so to earn a living, I became a copy editor with a publisher, which, to be honest, I found rather tedious. Well, we can't always do exactly what we want. Oh, absolutely not. And in fact, I cheered up quite considerably when I was asked to compile a uh, new anthology of children's fairy tales. So I should think. Especially when I started to get into it, and I realized how many themes these stories have in common, and how relevant those themes are to our situation now. Go on. Well, almost all fairy tales begin by establishing that the story is set a long time ago, far away, and in a time of particular and now lost possibilities. Once upon a time... A thousand years ago or longer, at a time when animals still talked. In olden times, when wishing still helped. But they don't all end the same. Well, you say that, but they almost all have happy endings. They lived happily ever after, and then all worries ended and they lived in perfect joy. And the bell rang, and that's the end of the story. And why shouldn't things end happily? Oh, well, no reason. I just think it's interesting all fairy tales do. As it's interesting that so many are about a good ruler dying or being overthrown and there being a contest for the succession. And there's sometimes people who look kind and nice and caring, but who turn out to be monsters. There may be a forbidden room with a secret book which will tell you everything, but if you read it, it may bring about what you least want and leave you worse off than you were before. But at the end, the false prince is exposed and punished, and the real prince comes into his kingdom. And I compiled a book of stories with those themes, and they wouldn't publish them. And when I asked them why not, they sacked me. And so I became a gardener, a bricklayer, and eventually a window cleaner. And I wrote a pamphlet about what I think the fairy tales are actually about, and I ended up in jail for disseminating fabrications hostile to the state. I can't imagine why. You're Pavel Proust. That's right. The bombastic, counter-revolutionary egoist. That's right. Hi, my name is Peter Tedeschi, and I am playing a character, the Prime Minister, actually, of this Eastern European country in which our play is set, and uh, his name is Kaplan, Michael Kaplan. Tell us a little about the play itself. The play is set in 1989 in an unnamed Eastern European country, right around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, the 
kind of six European, Eastern European countries that threw off communism at the time are sort of amalgamated into this one, into this one production, into this one country. And it's about a group of opposition people who want to throw the yoke of communism off and the group of communist leaders who want to keep it the way it is, but also recognize that some changes do need to be made. And that's essentially the the main setting of the play. But it's really about, beyond that, the human desire to have some control in your life and make a better life for yourself and live a happier existence and live in a society that works. So it's about big ideas and there's great humor and great passion and you know, those of us who are old enough to remember, although I was quite young at the time in 1989 when all of these things happened, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in countries where just a few months earlier it would have been unimaginable because they would have all been mowed down and shot. So it was, it was quite an energized, exciting time. And it's very, very pertinent to us right now also because of what's happening in the Arab world. Why don't you go ahead and describe the scene that we just heard? Well, that's the very, very beginning of the play, and that is between two wonderful actors, as you heard, James and Tamara. And James plays Pavel Proust, and so he's being held uh, in this big hall in the main room where most of the play is set. He's been brought from prison. He doesn't know why he's sitting there yet. And then this assistant comes in, and she's like, who are you? Thinking he's maybe some pro-communist expert, when in fact it turns out he's from a prison. So that sort of scares her a little bit. And then she realizes in the course of the conversation that he is Pavel Proust, the bombastic counter-revolutionary, as he calls him. Of course, you know, the, the communist revolution that happened earlier in the 20th century, they thought was a great thing. So being a counter-revolutionary was really quite a terrible thing. And that sort of starts to unfold and you begin to realize who he is. And that sets the stage of the play and how he is expected to renounce his anti-communist standings, and which, of course, doesn't happen. And I don't want to give the whole play away, but I can say this much. We all know, because it happened, that communism was thrown out in Eastern Europe. So, um, you know, that's, that's not too much of a shock. So in light of the current conflicts in the Arab world, how do you think this play, or why do you think this play has relevancy today? Well, in the Arab world, and I'm not an expert in the Arab world, um, it wasn't that long ago where, again, seeing hundreds of thousands of people, just like what happened in Eastern Europe, taking to the streets, filling the squares, demanding freedom, demanding some control over their lives, demanding a sense of, of we want to get rid of corruption, we want to get rid of the impositions on our lives and find a way to create our own destinies. And we're seeing that happen. And it's extraordinary. When can we come see this play? Okay, the play is running Thursdays through Sundays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturday nights at 7.30 p.m. and Sundays at 2 p.m. And it closes on April 24th. So you have between now and April 24th. And by the way, I should mention, it's the American premiere. David Edgar, who is an amazing British playwright, he writes often for the Royal Shakespeare Company, wrote this play. It appeared once in Britain 20 years ago, and it has never been done since. And you can see it at Burning Coal Theatre Company, and that's at the Murphy School Theatre, which is 224 Polk Street in Raleigh. All right, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. WKNC 88.1. You are listening to Eye on the Triangle, and now it is time for the Video Game Podcast with Rich Lepore. The Joy of Gaming Podcast is recorded twice a month here at NC State covering games and the gaming industry from a unique perspective. I'm Rich Lepore, and my usual co-host, Tim McNeil, couldn't be here this week, but the following is a brief snippet from the Joy of Gaming podcast, a rundown of the latest events in the gaming world. First up, Dead Rising 2 is getting yet another downloadable update via PlayStation Network and Xbox Live. This time, instead of offering an entirely new content pack like they did with prequel story Dead Rising K-Zero and sequel story Dead Rising 2 K-West, Capcom is giving players the ability to play the entirety of Dead Rising 2's campaign as Frank West, the fan-favorite lead character from the original Dead Rising. This new content, entitled Dead Rising 2 Off the Record, is advertised as a what-if story, and in addition to giving players the ability to play as Frank West, 
will also include, quote, a brand new Fortune City attraction to explore. We'll have to wait and see what that entails. Dead Rising 2, off the record, will be released in the fall. And in shooter news, the Gears 3 beta opens up next Monday for gamers who purchased Bulletstorm and a week later for people who pre-ordered Gears 3 through GameStop. The beta testing process is basically a chance for gamers to play the multiplayer portion of the game early, as well as an opportunity for the game's developer, Epic Games, to stress test their online systems before launching the full game on September 20th later this year. The beta will last for three weeks and will also allow participants to unlock some special weapons, including a gold-plated Retro Lancer. Yay. Speaking of Epic Games, who are a AAA developer that's actually located right here in the Triangle, they'll be playing a big role in the East Coast Games Conference, which starts tomorrow. This is the conference's third year in existence, but if you hadn't heard of it before, there's a reason for that. The conference was originally called the Triangle Games Conference, but it has grown so much in its first two years that the con's organizers, Triangle Game Initiative, decided that the name needed to become bigger and more encompassing to match the event. The event. Epic Games will have multiple designers and engineers on hand at the convention to discuss game development using their Unreal Engine, and will also hold what's called the Unreal University, an informal class on how to develop games using the Unreal Developers Kit. The convention will also feature panels with industry veterans, a job fair, and much more. It starts tomorrow at the Raleigh Convention Center and continues on through Thursday. And finally, some gaming new releases. Uh, new releases today are Michael Jackson The Experience for Kinect on Xbox 360 and Move on PS3. This is a game that was originally released on Wii near the end of last year, and uh, it's a pretty big success for Ubisoft. Um, but now it is expanding out to the big boy game console market, and we'll see how it fares there. Um, next up, Divinity 2, the Dragon Knight Saga for Xbox 360. This is an action RPG hybrid with a strong fan base in the PC market. Again, we'll have to see how it does on 360. And next week, a game we've all been waiting for, Portal 2. This is the first traditional Valve game that's been released in a couple years. And although it may not be the new Half-Life game that I'm dying to play, which is still unannounced, Valve, come on, it will be pretty awesome. This game, unlike the original, will be a full-length title featuring a fully fleshed-out story and many diverse and unique environments. So it won't just be the same dismal interiors of the previous title. Let's put it this way, on April 18th, Portal 2 is all gamers will be talking about, whether you want them to or not. Also next week, SOCOM 4, another game with a storied history, this time for PlayStation 3 exclusively. SOCOM 4 is a third-person squad-based shooter that combines the fun of arcade shooters with the tactics of a game like Ghost Recon or Rainbow Six. The last game in the series, SOCOM Confrontation, was actually an online-only game and was not developed by Zipper Interactive the developer behind the first three SOCOM games, and now SOCOM 4. From the early buzz, it sounds like this new title is a return to the series' roots, and it also features move support, so expect a pleasant blend of the old and the new. And that about wraps it up for this week, but if you'd like more Joy of Gaming, go to technicianonline.com features. And be sure to email us at rtlepore at ncsu.edu with any questions, comments, or ideas to improve the show. We'll see you next time. And thanks, Rich. We're going to now move on to a story prepared by Jacob about Record Store Day right here at School Kids Records. The mid-2000s was a period in which record stores closed in mass numbers, unable to compete with the download reformation. Those that survived did so by latching on to what made them neighborhood stores. This included a focus on providing information and entertainment, as well as a desire to bond with their customers over what makes them passionate about harmonized noise. In 2007, Chris Brown got the idea that this record store culture deserved to be celebrated. A year later, and every third Saturday in April since, independent record stores around the globe have united to celebrate the record store holiday. This is done with in-store performances, crazy contests, special releases, and special hours that allow you to mingle with your fellow music fans that are looking for something with a little more physical presence. Seeing how rich and important the music scene is here in the Triangle, Record Store Day just might be a big deal, right? You betcha. And in fact, to get a better perspective, I on the Triangle caught up with Kyle Roscoe of Raleigh's School Kids Records, as well as Missy Don Briggs of the Chapel Hill music-based support crew, 
No More Fake Labels. Raleigh, it's always growing. Odds are it's somebody's first record store day. Kyle, from the store's point of view, what's all the excitement about? Well, there's a lot of exclusive vinyl that comes out from big artists, 7 inches and 12-inch singles and early release 12-inch full-length albums. There's usually a few hot items every year that people grab in the first couple minutes, but it's just a whole bunch of exclusive releases, and it's just a day to celebrate the independent brick-and-mortar stores that have a hard time the other 364 days of the year. <laughs> Are there any releases that you're excited for? Oh, yeah. One of the ones I'm looking forward to most is the James Blake record gets a release on vinyl, which I've been listening to that a lot, and I'm way into that. James Blake, there's a Rolling Stones 7-inch uh, coming out. There's an awesome Beach Boys 10-inch coming out. It's Good Vibrations and he backed with Heroes and Villains, so that should be a, a pretty in-demand item, uh, as well as many, many others. I feel like most of those, you know, even though they're quote-unquote exclusives, are eventually going to work their way online. What makes a record store relevant nowadays? A record store has remained relevant. It's just the fact that it's nice to have a physical product with the music that you listen to. I especially enjoy flipping through artwork and lyric sheets and stuff like that. Um, when I'm listening to, to records, it's just, it's nice to have, to look at something physically and actually touch something and see something in front of your eyes, um, when you're flipping through. And, um, you know, record stores are going to be the only places in town that are going to have a lot of stuff on vinyl as opposed to, um, CDs. You can go to, you know, Best Buy or places like that for CDs, but A, they're not going to have as much CDs and B, they're not going to have any vinyl. So I guess the purpose of record stores is uh, to satisfy that kind of niche of people who still, enjoy collecting vinyl uh, and CDs to, to a certain extent as well. Chapel Hill's No More Fake Labels is having a huge exclusive release for stores participating with Record Store Day. Before we get into that, though, Kyle was just pointing out that record stores are one of the few places that you can still get vinyl records. Beyond Nostalgia Misty, do you think there's still something to that format? Well, I think there's something to that still. Uh, something that's recorded on vinyl, it does have a different sound. It has a different feel to it. And I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think there is some connection to having that physical thing in your hand and putting it on a record player and actually sitting down and, and hearing the imperfections as well as the perfections in the sound. It's just something that you either love it or you hate it. And luckily, there are a lot of people that, that just really enjoy the warmth of vinyl. Last September, I heard that No More Fake Labels was working on a Guided by Voices tribute project. Now, Record Store Day is coming up this Saturday and that project has reached its completion. What does it look like? Well, it's a 23-song release, uh, 17 songs on the CD, 6 on the EP, uh, a big mix of, you know, Guided by Voices contemporaries along with new indie bands and up-and-coming indie bands. And uh, we took the tracks from the CD and the digital EP and mixed them together and rearranged them into a double vinyl a set that we're releasing on Record Store Day. The tribute album, appropriately enough, is called Sing For Your Meat. It includes Guided by Voices covers from The Fleming Lips, Lou Barlow, Thurston Moore, Lacera, David Kilgore, Western Civ, The Neurotics, and I Was Totally Destroying It, amongst others. Why was Record Store Day chosen to release this compilation? Well, because, I mean, without the record stores, none of us can make a living. You know, the record stores really help us out, and in addition to helping us out, it's just such a great feeling to walk into a record store and start thumbing through actual physical CDs and physical vinyl. And, you know, there's just something to the whole experience. And I'm afraid that, that people are kind of losing touch with that. So we thought hopefully releasing on Record Store Day would encourage more people to get out to their local record stores to, to physically walk through a door somewhere and purchase music in some other form other than bits. A big part of the fun for me of Record Store Day is the in-store performances. Do you have any events planned for the release? Indeed, we are. There's uh, four release parties set up at four record stores in four different states. Um, the local band, I Was Totally Destroying It, is going to be playing at Dave's Records in Chicago because uh, they're on tour at the moment, and Dave was kind enough to hook them up with a great place to play. Uh, Marie Stella, who is on the digital EP and the vinyl album, uh, they're playing in Brunswick, Maine at uh, Bull Moose, which the guy that owns Bull Moose actually started Record Store Day. So they're going to be playing there to celebrate the release. Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit are performing in Nashville at Grimey's Records, and I've heard that they are going to do their GBD cover there. 
And it, uh, that one is honestly one of my favorites on the album. And then the big whammy is our release party in Dayton, Ohio, which is where Batted by Voices are from. And there's going to be an all-day event there with Kelly Deal and the Buffalo Killers. And Mitch Mitchell of Guided by Voices is going to come join in and, and play a couple of GBV songs with Kelly. And then new Dayton signees to No More Fake Labels, Motel Beds, are going to play right after them. Then there's four more bands and a listening party. And we're going to have, you know, their local radio will be there. And I believe Cool TV is going to be broadcasting it live as well. Do you have anything going on? Locally, uh, they're trying to put something together at uh, Bull City Records. It was kind of a, a last-minute pull-together thing. Will there be anything else going on with that? A, a couple of the local bands that are involved, they're trying to put together some acoustic stuff to just kind of come and play some acoustic GBV covers and hang out. Raleigh's own School Kids Records, kind of known for their in-store performances. Kyle. What kind of lineup are you looking at on Saturday? We have uh, four in-store performances scheduled for Record Store Day. We have at 11 a.m. an artist called Radical Classical, electric guitarist. 12 p.m. we have the Dex Ron Weber duo, who of course have local ties, kind of a local legend around the area. 2 p.m. we have the Ravenettes. They will be they'll be playing Cat's Cradle later that night. So, and then uh, 4 p.m. we have a bit, uh, an indie band out of I believe Baltimore called Adventure. That's at 4 p.m., and that'll be the last in-store performance of the day. For more Record Store Day celebration information, you might want to hit up your neighborhood record store. These include Durham's Bull City Records, CD Alley Allen Chapel Hill, All Day Records down in Carborough, and Raleigh's own School Kids. For On the Triangle, I'm Jacob Downey. April 2nd was the annual Noose River Cleanup, and over 500 volunteers from Raleigh, Durham, and Johnson County joined to pick up trash from the river and its tributaries. I met with one of the river keepers of the Noose to find out more about the condition of this major waterway. Well, my name is Alyssa Birma, and I'm the Upper Noose River Keeper for the Noose River Keeper Foundation. Um, we're an environmental organization, a nonprofit that's dedicated to protecting and preserving the Noose River and all of the other surface waters in the area for the community and for the future. Today, which is April 2nd, is the big Noose River Keeper River Cleanup. So could you explain what exactly is going on and uh, what the volunteers are doing? It, today is our ninth annual Noose River cleanup. Um, we have over 300 people out cleaning up the surface waters in the area, all the way from Falls Dam down to actually Smithfield Town Commons in Johnston County, which is over 50 miles of the river. We also have folks out on Crabtree Creek helping clean up some of the, the Raleigh Greenway area. And it's not just trash like plastic bottles that you see that that are just unpleasant to look at some of the stuff that we pick up is actually fairly dangerous things like cans of oil cans of paint that if they got out of their container you know if we ended up with a hole in it could be pretty seriously harmful to the surrounding environment yes yeah, so what kind of things have you seen today I, I think the majority of really big clunky things would be litter but also a lot of tires what are some of the big things that you've seen but also some of the strange things um we pulled a cash register out of one of the sites we have someone working on pulling a mattress out of the bank of the stream right now um, we've collected we got an entire bag of bottles of used motor oil um we've actually pulled out a sleeping bag and a leather jacket today so it, it's different at the different sites, um, but it's everything from the little you know worm bait containers that fishermen don't properly dispose of to serious illegal dumping. Why are people using the rivers as dumpsters? It's really unfortunate that people feel a need to use our natural environment as a landfill, um, particularly because Pretty much everything we're finding in the waterways, you can dispose of properly for free if you do a little bit of research. Um, and the city of Raleigh will come and pick stuff up, the big bulky stuff, right from your curb. 
But the education isn't there. People don't know how to properly dispose of this stuff, or they don't know that they can do it for free. They don't know that the county actually has free hazardous waste days where you can drop off used paint and oil and that kind of stuff. So a lot of it is just education, but quite honestly, some of it's laziness, too. Okay. And going back to the Riverkeeper Foundation, your main goal is to make the river as safe and uh, environmentally safe as possible, or what's your mission? All surface waters should be fishable, swimmable, and drinkable. The Federal Clean Water Act tells us that we have an absolute right to safe clean water as United States citizens. And it's our goal to support that act, to make sure that your five-year-old child can play safely in the stream in their backyard and not get sick, and that their grandchildren will be able to do the same. You mentioned there are two branches in the News River, the upper branch and the lower branch, and you are involved in the upper branch. But you said you spend a lot more time with policymakers than in the water. So can you explain what exactly you're doing um, with the government? Well, we have two full-time paid advocates, myself and then a Lower Noose Riverkeeper. And a lot of what we do could be considered sort of watchdogging for the government. Um, we have really good environmental regulations in place, but they need to be enforced properly in order to be functional, in order to actually protect our waterways the way they need to. And so we do a combination of things. When when a, a law isn't good enough, we go ahead and work with the government or um, with our citizens to try and pass laws that are strong enough when um, to protect our waterways. But we also keep an eye on permits. We keep an eye on rezonings. We um, try and make sure that the laws that are in place are followed to the letter. Right now, we're working on a number of pieces that have to do with buffer requirements. And we certainly are always working on things that are directly related to pollution inputs to the waterways, like nutrients um, and um, the NPDES permit system that all the wastewater dischargers have. Talking about just advocating policies, what's going on on the 21st of April? April 21st is the final hearing for what is called the Joint Regulatory Reform Committee. It's a new committee that was formed by the legislature this year to review the regulations that are already in place and figure out basically what they can get rid of in order to bring business to North Carolina. Our real concern is that at the top of that list in their minds are environmental regulations. And Forbes has already called North Carolina the third best state in the nation for business with all of these regulations that protect our future in place. We don't need to be relaxing regulations. We need to be maintaining them and enforcing them. And it will bring business because we have beauty. Um, So the 21st is the final public hearing for this new committee. And what they are doing is they are asking the public and the business community to come tell them what they need to be looking at, what they need to be focusing on. And we need people to come tell them that we don't need to be relaxing environmental regulations, that short-sightedness is not the solution to economic issues. Okay. If someone is interested and uh, getting in touch with you and the Noose River Keeper Foundation, how can they do that? I am always available for assi- to assist folks with water quality concerns or to explain what's going on. Um, they can give us a call at 919-856-1180, um, or they can find us on our website at nooseriver.org. Um, that's for those of you who are not local, N-E-U-S-E river.org. The hearing on the 21st, we would love to have people join us. It's from 1 to 3 in the legislative building, um, which is downtown Raleigh. Um, Come a little bit early, get signed up to speak. And even if you are not comfortable speaking in person, um, there's opportunities to submit comments online. And we'd really love to hear you and have your voice. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Down in the river to 
Just about wraps up this week's edition of Iron Triangle. I want to thank Tyler Vrennan, Jacob Downey, Tommy Anderson, Selma, Kyle Jones, Lydia Simmons, Dave, and Nick, the technician, assistant director Mark Herring, the Joy of Gaming podcast, and the NC State Entomology Department, the Burning Coal Theater, Tommy Anderson, Danny McBride, Selma, and you, the listener. If you would like to get in touch with our show, please give us a call at 628 628- it was 0869, or email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org. However, if you're more into the snail mail type, our address is WKNC 88.1 FM, Attention Public Affairs, Campus Box 8607343, Witherspoon Student Center, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27695. If you want to download our podcast, you will find it at wknc.org slash EOT slash podcast. Jen, and for I on the Triangle, I am... Chris Chaffee, and we will see you next week.